Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alastair Roberts and James B. John. Brian Motes is recording, and he'll be editing and getting everything ready for uh, distribution of the podcast. Uh, we're recording uh, again on a day when Jeff Myers is not available. Uh, he's usually part of our podcast team, but he's serving uh, in his church, has a pa- had a pastoral call. Uh, and so, again, our prayers are with him as we uh, go about this uh, podcast recording. Uh, we're in the middle of a series of podcasts on the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and we're in the middle of the section of Deuteronomy that's dealing with what with the fifth word, the fifth commandment, which is the commandment, uh, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God giveth you. And this section of Deuteronomy is devoted uh, exclusively to kind of symbolic fathers, not literal fathers in houses. That's not the concern but rather to uh, judges who judges and kings who govern the civic world, the civic uh, arena, the land, priests who share in the governance of the land, but also deal with, uh, also are involved in, particularly and in, in centrally involved in the governance and the care of worship in the Lord's house. Uh, and in this section, uh, the end of Deuteronomy 18, which is the last section of the fifth word portion of Deuteronomy, it's focusing on prophets. A couple of things I talked about. I talked about future telling uh, at the beginning of the last episode. I want to add a couple of things to that to, to ease us into this section of the of the chapter. This is beginning in verse nine of chapter eighteen through the, to the end of the chapter. Uh, just a, a couple of things about uh, about how this fits into the overall setting of Deuteronomy. First of all, this section of Deuteronomy is often thought of as a kind of constitutional section. Uh, you think of the U.S. Constitution. And the U.S. Constitution sets out branches of government that are assigned different responsibilities, uh, the limits of their responsibilities, the, the overlap and interaction of different responsibilities, and so on. Uh, and um, this section of Deuteronomy resembles that in a general way. We have judges that are uh, described and what what they're to do and how they're to behave. The king is anticipated and what kings are supposed to do. The Priests, uh, it's not so much about what priests are supposed to do, but how Israel is supposed to honor them as their uh, liturgical fathers by supporting them, by giving them their tithes and their offerings and so on. So it's a kind of constitutional order. And yet, at the end of this section, the Lord promises a prophet like Moses that he's going to raise up a prophet like Moses who's going to speak everything the Lord puts in his mouth to speak. That's a different kind of provision than the provision of Levitical priests uh, in the Torah, of course, the priests who serve as priests are all descendants of Aaron. They're qualified, uh, as Hebrews says, they're qualified by flesh to serve at the at the sanctuary uh, because they're descended from Aaron. Kings, at least once we get the Davidic era, kings descend from the founding king of the dynasty. And even in the northern kingdom, after it breaks away from the Davidic dynasty, you have a series of dynasties where kings are qualified for that position by being sons of a previous king. That goes on for a few generations, and then there's an end to the dynasty, and there's some kind of revolution, and a new dynasty begins. Um, but priest, a pro, rather prophetic office is kind of uh, different, different from that kind of settled succession. Uh, you eventually have sons of the prophets. You have kind of institutionalization of prophets. But uh, the prophet is kind of wild card, a wild card in Israel's world. 
the prophets intervene. It's uh, the Lord reserves the right to intervene directly into the affairs of Israel. Um, uh, not everything is institutionalized. Elijah is raised up out of nowhere. The man of God from Judah is raised up out of nowhere. Other prophets in the history of Israel come out of nowhere, and they speak the word of the Lord to kings, and they speak the word of the Lord to the people, uh, and they 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 receive a, a call from the Lord. Uh, major the major prophetic books have call scenes. Uh, Jeremiah has a call. Isaiah has a is called to this prophetic office uh, when he sees the vision of the Lord seated on his throne and Ezekiel receives the book that he eats and then he's going to speak the words of the book uh, and that's all direct divine appointment that's not because they have received that position as prophet from some previous prophet or because they're descended from a prophet uh, Amos makes it clear that he's not the son of, son of a prophet so there's there's not a direct descent and that's that's a that's an interesting thing to put in your constitution it's like you're having you're 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 establishing a provision for uh, disruption to happen uh, when Israel becomes corrupt, and when the Lord needs to intervene, He sends a prophet to intervene and to uh, confront and rebuke and call the people to repentance. So uh, that's a that's one facet of it. The other facet uh, that I wanted to bring up, I, I talked about uh, forms of divination last time briefly, and we'll talk about that in more detail in just a moment. But uh, I made a brief comment that uh, we have we have our own forms of divination in the modern world. We've given up reading entrails and looking at uh, the the livers of uh, of dead animals or some kind of uh, using arrows somehow to try to divine uh, the future but we have various ways of trying to anticipate the future that's coming uh, we we think of them as scientific methods we have statistical methods that uh, help us to predict what's going to happen and uh, we think we have a great deal of certainty in predicting what's going to happen uh, and uh, we typically don't uh, have that kind of certainty. Oliver O'Donovan uh, has some really insightful comments in one of his ethics books, one of his recent books on theology and ethics, where he talks about, uh, he presents what he calls a critique of anticipation. Um, we all have to, uh, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of last episode, we all are oriented to the future. We have to have some conception of what we think is going to happen next in order to act at all. We have to have some conception that we have some control over outcomes in the future. You know, any kind of planning involves some uh, hope that we have some control over the outcomes in the future. But O'Donovan points out that in the modern age, we we want those outcomes to be quite definite, uh, and we get fixed in on certain outcomes, and we think that we can determine those outcomes by certain kinds of uh, sociological, political manipulation, economic manipulation, and he he. He lays out some of the consequences of that need for anticipation that uh, that dominates us. Says so it tends to it tends to fall into kind of utilitarianism, uh, where we form our decisions on the basis of anticipated outcomes of our actions, rather than thinking uh, I'm going to do this because it's wise and just and right to do it. Uh, we try to anticipate what's going to happen as a result of what we do, and we judge the, the judge our actions by by that kind of utilitarian standards of uh, the anticipated outcome and the, whether it's a good outcome or a bad outcome. And O'Donovan makes the obvious point that we just don't have that kind of control over the outcomes. And uh, it it's uh, it also puts us in a position where we're making decisions, not the basis on what is right and wrong, but in the basis of what the results of our actions will be, a consequentialist kind of ethics. We also have the tendency to abstract and limit and be reductive about our 
our predictions. So we we can't anticipate everything. So we abstract and focus in on one particular facet of life that is more predictable than other facets of life. And we treat that as kind of the key to everything because it's predictable. The more easily we can predict something, the more uh, the more regular it is, the more it becomes kind of the baseline. Uh, and we uh, we elevate into a kind of master principle or master cause. If we think that we can manipulate the economy by various adjustments, infusions of funds, you know, manipulation of the of the uh, of the money supply, for example, is a way to manipulate prices and to heat and cool off the economy. Uh, that's a, that's one aspect of a complex social life, and we think we can organize and control everything if we're just turning that one pulling that one lever. Again, O'Donovan's saying we can't. We actually don't have that kind of control, and in fact. The lever that we have, the only reason why we think it controls everything is because it seems to be more reliable, more reliable than other levers that we might use. And so we fasten on that and we we end up with this kind of reductive anticipation of the future. Uh, he also talks about the way that short-term planning and short-term interests take precedence over longer-term interests. Uh, short-term results are much more easy, easily predicted. We can we can figure out what might happen in the next a few weeks more easily than we can predict what will happen in five or 10 years. Uh, even that's kind of an illusion. But we have the illusion that we can predict things and control things and anticipate accurately in the short term. And when anticipation becomes this kind of dominating, this dominating interest uh, and uh, accurate and precise prediction of the future becomes a dominating interest, then that tends to, uh, we tend to move into very short term concerns because that's all we can all we can control or all all at least it seems that we can control so that's just a way a, a, a donovan has a lot more to say about anticipation in that little section of his book i don't remember which of the volumes it's in but uh, has a lot more to say but that that kind of illustrates the kind of thing that i was uh, alluded to briefly last time that we do have in in the modern world we do have alternatives to the kind of divination methods that are listed here in deuteronomy uh, and we, I think we have the same kind of warnings, you know, who do we listen to uh, when we're anticipating the future? Ancient Israelites were not supposed to hear the diviners, they're supposed to hear the prophet and the word of God. That's what discloses whatever they know about the future, whatever the certainty they have about the future is disclosed by the prophets. And the same kind of, uh, same kind of dynamic in the modern world, we have various kinds of diviners uh, in, in our own world, but uh, we need to be fixed instead on uh, we live our lives in anticipation of the the realization of the promise of God and not in terms of what we can anticipate or what we think we can control through various kinds of economic or political or sociological mechanisms. That then seems to key into some of the things we've spoken about in this section that have to do with the the power of the word. Um, we're obviously going to get on to um, the prophet that God will raise up soon. But in previous sections, there has been the idea of false testimony and uh, um, the way in which there um, people can use the power of the word to manipulate, to um, misdirect um, the kind of the law system and so forth. Um, there is the king as subject to God's word. And what, what that then seems to bring into sharp relief is the whole idea of kind of um, these necromancers, um, 
uh, all bound up with idolatry. Um, it 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 feels that those whole institutions are effectively ways where you can hear what you want to hear. So if you surround yourself with the right prophets, um, as they did in Micaiah's day, then the king can get whatever message he wants from them. Um, idols are dumb, and so if you kind of um, convene various feasts and get up to a, all sorts of things you shouldn't be getting up to in the name of an idol, then the idol um, isn't going to complain. And kind of what then is in stark contrast to that is a, a living God who who has a word, um, a living word that speaks and uh, proclaims God's own will. And um, it, it seems that that um, sharp contrast is is being brought out here. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 33, in the blessing upon Levi, um, it's interesting what is singled out. Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar, um, etc. The fact that the one thing that's especially singled out of Levi is the giving of Urim and Thummim to them is interesting because those were means by which um, judgment concerning the future was given. And so I wonder whether the treatment of these practices and the prohibition upon these forms of divination and fortune telling and divining um, in the context of the setting apart of Levi, which later on in the book is connected with the gift of um, those instruments by which they would seek the Lord's will concerning the future, whether those things are connected and whether there's a deeper um, sense in which um, Levi was entrusted with judgment concerning um, future actions on account of his faithfulness and how that difference between Levi's approach and the approach of those who are engaged in these false practices might explain um, the legitimate use of Urim and Thummim, um, as opposed to the illegitimate practices of um, divination and fortune telling. Yeah, that's really helpful, Alistair, because that is a question about what uh, what's the logic of the movement of this particular chapter. You you start the chapter with uh, stuff about Levites and priests, and then you move into divination. That's anticipating what he's going to say about prophets. But yeah, that's a helpful way to make the connection between priests and this section on divination. I also wanted to um, react to what uh, James said. I think the, I think there's a kind of verbal uh, indication that the contrast that you highlighted is exactly the contrast that's in view here. That is the contrast between trying to live according to the diviners or the necromancers or uh, the sorcerers and living according to the word. And I'm looking at the way that uh, verse 10 which introduces, um, oh, sorry, verse nine, which introduces this section, uh, that uh, it, uh, the way that it describes what they are not to do. When you enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of these nations, those nations. Uh, but that the word imitate uh, 
my new American standard translates it as imitate, but it's to do according to the detestable things of these nations. And that phrasing, do according to, is phrasing that's used uh, with Torah as the object of that preposition. Do according to Torah. Uh, Joshua 1.7 uses the same verb, same preposition, and then Torah is the uh, is the object of the preposition. Torah and toeva, maybe even there's a there's a kind of play there. Toeva means detestable, abominable things. So uh, in the broader context of Deuteronomy, doing according to sets you up to think, well, you do according to Torah. That's what you're supposed to do. Uh, here, you're not to do according to the toeva, the detestable things. Right. And I wonder if the um, uh, thinking of things that both you and you've said, Peter and Alistair, I wonder if the idea of fire is relevant here. We've we've um, been talking about the Levites as um, sharing in God's um, fire in the offerings by fire. And that kind of contrasts then in um, uh, verse 10 to those who, who pass, uh, where is it, kind of, I guess, literally their son or their daughter into the fire. Um, and and it, it feels to me that a lot of the, um, um, this is now a slightly separate point, but a lot of the words to do with sorcery and all, all the rest of it here are quite relevant to Balaam's story. I mean, if you think about it, here is Moses um, talking to uh, the Israelites standing on the plains of Moab where all this has um, gone on. So there's a, a physical uh, contextual um, link and kind of Balaam is a, um, a diviner, this this um, word sort of, uh, kosem here, here in, in, in verse 10. And um, uh, he, he's also referred to in terms of um, oracles, the sort of nachash sounding word that pops up in verse 10 as well. Um, and the the priests are it seems a, a kind of foil and an inverse um balam balam is kind of to uh curse them and and to um to curse what god has blessed and the the levites are, are yeah to be like a, a counter balance to that just as Phinehas um kind of skewered the ringleader of the um immorality in, in numbers um 25 to put an end to the um plague effectively started by um balam like uh, his um advice um uh, at the very least um there to be phinehas like um figures in in purifying israel yeah that's it's interesting uh, uh balam as a as a background episode balam is going to come up uh, at some point in Deuteronomy, but uh, it's it'd be interesting to fill that out. I hadn't thought about that connection, but it'd be interesting to fill out, think about how much of uh, the Balaam story is kind of haunting what what uh, what Moses says here. I want to ask if either of you have any insight into the uh, uh, into the actual practices that are being described here. Not uh, not that I want to try them, but I'm just curious about uh, some of the terminology that's used and some of the ways that these things are described. First of all, the the idea of a, a son or daughter passing through the fire, I think we saw that in isolation. When we see that other places in the Old Testament, we tend to think of it as a as an act of um, human sacrifice, or maybe some kind of initiation into some devotion to the gods. You pass through the fire as a 
as a kind of rite of passage. But here it seems it's grouped with things that uh, are um, ways of uh, divining the future. So, it, uh, what are, what's going on there? What's how would that work? The other thing, the other thing that uh, the other word, Hebrew word that uh, struck me was the one that you mentioned, James, which is nachash, which is in various uh, with various vocalizations can mean uh, can mean serpent. And I wondered if you, James, you thought that was uh, somehow uh, involved in the usage that's uh, that you find here in this passage. I'm sure there's uh, some sort of um, play going on with it. I mean, of course, it's it's similar to um, the verbs for. Well, the, the word for bronze, isn't it? And and almost a, a little bit like um, Phinehas, although the sort of uh, S sound is is slightly different. But it, it, it seems to be this thing that can spawn an, an enormous amount of wordplay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know quite how g- giving a, a son or, or daughter into the fire is meant to um, have that revelatory effect is it something that's done to um uh to curry the god's favor or or something and that if that's done then the god might be um willing to reveal certain things to you um this is not anything i've looked into though i'm just sort of speculating at the moment would we see it as related to for instance second kings three with the king of moab in a moment of extreme concern for his city sacrificing his oldest son to reverse the course of the battle yeah so that would fit with the uh, james's suggestion that uh it's some way of because that, that's what seems to be going on in that passage that uh, the king is going to desperate uh, uh des- desperate extremes in order to receive the favor of his uh, of his gods and deliver the city Whatever whatever these practices are, I mean, twice uh, Moses tells them that they're abominations and detestable things that are not to be done, uh, and these are the kinds of things that Canaanites do as part of the basis for the expulsion from the land, and if Israel does the things that the Canaanites do, then they'll suffer the same fate. They'll be expelled from the land, too. The last couple of verses of this section from verses 13 and 14 are interesting. The contrast is that Israel is to be blameless, complete, perfect. I take that to mean uh, a people of undivided loyalty. They're perfect in the sense of complete devotion to Yahweh and not being seduced by other gods or by other means of uh, of uh, insight or wisdom. Uh, they're they're complete with the Lord. That's the counterpoint. Instead of going after all these other cool practices that seem to uh, seem to serve the uh, serve the Canaanites, they should uh, devote themselves to the Lord. The other thing that uh, is interesting in verse 14 at the end, you're not to hear those who practice witchcraft or diviners. It's Shama again in verse 14. And then the very last clause, but as for you, Yahweh your God has not allowed you to do so. So that's different from Yahweh has, doesn't permit you to do it, doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't want you to do it. He prohibits you from doing it. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of preservation, it seems, that is uh, being referred to here, that the Lord has preserved Israel from going astray after these kinds of uh, practices and uh, this way this way of divining the future. I wonder, uh, since uh, James has brought up Balaam, I wonder if Balaam might be in the background of that, that the Lord has preserved them from, from those abominations, those detestable things, particularly in the Balaam episode. But uh, whether that's in the background or not, it does seem like there's this 
general preservation of the Lord has restrained them from going after these things. Uh, and that's uh, uh, Israel can be complete with the Lord if they just trust him to 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 keep them away from these things and to hold them close to him. I think part of what's going on is, is just a bit of wordplay in the sense that um, the Lord has not allowed you to do this is is literally has has not given um given you to do this which is sort of the normal way of, of saying it in hebrew and and so it's kind of almost an, an inclusio with verse um nine when you come into the land that the lord your god is giving you um you're not to um do all these abominable things the lord has not given you um those things you know god so god has given the good of the land the first fruits the rain etc the vineyards but he hasn't given um those uh, abominable practices and there seem to be some other um examples of of similar things going on so one of the terms for um a what is it it's probably someone who inquires of uh the dead it's it's a doresh literally sort of someone who seeks um seeks the dead and then towards the end of the chapter when God says, um, I will uh, require it of him, the prophet who speaks um, presumptuously. It's, it's the same um, sort of Dorish um, root. Um, so kind of I, I will seek it of him. And and there seem to be quite a few instances of that um, in, in this chapter. There's kind of um, a word used with two, um, two distinct senses. Alistair mentioned earlier the uh, contrast between these practices of the Canaanites and the Urim and Thummim that are given to the priest, which are used for a similar purpose to discern the Lord's will and to determine what Israel is to do. Uh, within the context, context of uh, chapter 18, the counterpoint is between uh, these diviners and necromancers and sorcerers uh, and uh, the prophet. I mentioned uh, in the last episode when we talked briefly about this, that the nations listen to or hear these diviners, but instead Israel is supposed to listen to the prophet. That's verses 14 and 15. The Shema is used in both of those verb uh, verses. Uh, and the contrast is between listening to the word and listening to the, to the prophets or, or to the diviners rather. One question that arises here is uh, ultimately as a Christian readers, we're going to say that the prophet like Moses is Jesus. The new Testament confirms that. Uh, and so, uh, that's ultimately the where this uh, where this uh, this promise that's the the ultimate trajectory of the promise. Uh, but in the more immediate, the more immediate need, of course, is for Israel to have a prophet to guide them. Moses is not going to be with them forever. That's been clear from the beginning of the book. Moses is not even going to enter the land with them, much less survive forever. And so, when Moses passes. Uh, what happens then? If this is just a passage, uh, just a promise about some uh, distant future prophet, then it doesn't seem to meet the needs of Israel because they need a prophet who will guide them. One interpretation that uh, I think is plausible, uh, commentators suggest that instead of talking about a single prophet, it's phrased as a single prophet, which makes it a, a suitable uh, a Christological application because he is the one singular prophet that uh, fulfills this. But what uh, what Moses is actually uh, the Lord is actually promising is a succession of prophets. They're going to be uh, Moses-like figures throughout Israel's history. At times, they're going to be, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, at times they're going to be 
intervening from the outside and and uh, they're the Lord's the Lord's intervention into Israel when Israel, especially when Israel goes astray, and Israel needs to be rebuked. But you also have uh, a, a prophetic figures that uh, guide Israel and teach Israel, and especially during the monarchy period when uh, kings uh, need guidance from the Lord, they consult with prophets uh, as well as with priests. And so what's being promised here is not just a singular prophet in the distant future, but a succession of prophets that are going to be uh, guiding Israel from the time of Moses on. Peter, before someone gives a uh, an intelligent answer to that question, probably Alistair, I wonder if there's something to be said about the fire here. We thought about the there's no need for them to um, pass their son or daughter through the fire to um, hurry favour because they have um, a prophet like Moses in verse 16, the one whom God sent into the fire effectively and passed through the fire and then became a um, a prophet for Israel. And I wonder if one of the ideas of continuity here is, is that a fire? So God spoke um, to Moses in the fire and the Levites are now ministers of fire. And so they um, eat from the fire um offerings they go back into the um uh temple to sort of to recharge to be heated up again before they um uh, go back out to minister and and so forth it's kind of reminiscent of of the prophetic figure of someone to going into the altar to get live coals again and 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 throw them out you know and and i wonder if that's um uh, an image that's tying a lot together here yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's thanks. Thanks for that. That's a really good connection. Yeah, and and might might shed some light on what it means for a son or daughter to pass through the fire. That there's some kind of there's some kind of prophetic vocation that's being that they're entering into or somehow qualified for. The other thing that uh, uh, verse sixteen highlights is the fact that Moses, as the prophet, is being put in the place where place where he's liable to die. That he's uh, the the Lord is recounting what the people asked uh, and and re- requested uh, after the ten words were declared at Sinai. The Lord spoke from the fire directly to Israel. Israel couldn't stand the voice, and so they said, uh, "Please stop talking to us directly. Instead, put Moses in between, uh, lest we die." There's this concern that they're going to uh, they're going to be consumed by the fire and by the voice that comes from the fire, and so Moses is this is put in this position where he, he is between the fire and the people. And that's a position of danger because uh, the fire will consume them. He passes the fire test, as you point out, James, and he's able to go into the fire. He's, he receives the words from the voice that's in the fire. He delivers those words uh, to the people. Uh, but that's kind of the prophetic stance. That's a prophetic position. Prophets are called to be spokesmen for uh, Yahweh, the God who is revealed in fire and cloud and smoke on Sinai, revealed in glory in the temple, revealed in the fire of the altar, uh, and prophets are called to be mediators and to stand in between to deliver the word from the fire to the people. Um, so that's that seems to be uh, a stance or a position that all prophets are in. Not Moses is the paradigm, but a prophet like Moses is going to be a prophet who's in that same kind of position standing before the fire, between the fire of the Lord and, and Israel. The role of the prophet also seems to develop largely in relationship to rulers. It tends to be, it seems to me, 
rulers, those who are leading the people into war, um, judges, kings, that particularly consult the prophet. Now, there are other occasions when people consult the seer as just regular members of the people, such as Saul in chapter 9 of um, 1 Samuel. But there seems to be a movement towards greater and more established prophetic ministry as we see the movement from, um, for instance, Saul, who's wondering whether what he should do since he's not received any dream, he's not received any answer uh, from Urim or Thummim, and he's not received any message from a prophet, he consults at that point the, the witch of Endor. Um, what we have later on, it seems, is a flowering of the role of the prophets very much as the kings start to become more established. And so there'd be a, a prophet within the court, and not just one, but a whole company of prophets. And I wonder um, how we're supposed to understand this development of the role of the prophets. Clearly, there's an initial prophet who's paradigmatic, as Moses was, so that the great prophet expected to come would be like Moses. And yet, um, there's also a movement from a lower sort of prophetic order um, who do not have such clear visions. We might think of Aaron and Miriam, who seem to have some sort of prophetic gifts besides their offices as leaders of the people. They have some prophetic insight, as we see in um, Numbers chapter 12, Numbers um, chapter 11, or is it chap chapter 12? But they do not have the same sort of insight that Moses does, where Moses speaks to the Lord mouth to mouth as a man to his friend. That development in the role of the prophets, their coordination with Israel's rise to greater kingly authority, it seems to me that um, that's a complicated development, not least by the fact that with the gift of the Spirit, we don't have direct prophetic guidance in the way that um, David would have done or um, that other of the kings would have sought out. And yet we have greater insight into the future, greater relationship to the future in the one who is the guarantee of that future to us, the foretaste and the, um, the down payment. I, I wonder how we're supposed to give an account of the prophet in its developing role that takes the, I suppose, the definitive character of Moses, and yet this movement from lower orders of prophecy, dreams, veiled visions, and other sorts of understanding to something that is far more pronounced. I mean, we don't have anything like um, the book of Revelation early on during the period of the judges, for instance. Yeah, I'm not uh, answering the question that you posed, but just to reinforce the question, that I'd see the trend that you're talking about. Um, I mean, the closest thing to what, what we have in Revelation is, I mean, certain visions of Daniel, which are alluded to in Revelation, or latter part of Ezekiel, which are grand and kind of ecstatic visions of a of a, of a monumental temple, city, and land that's been restored. So it's in the latter part of the, you know, in the exilic era of Israel's history that you have these anticipations of uh, this, uh, uh, the the greater, uh, of, of the prophecy of Revelation. 
Um, so yeah, I, I see. I see what you're saying about the uh, the development. I, I wonder that. I wonder again. Yeah, I'm just repeating the question, I guess. But uh, in in what way is uh, Moses paradigmatic of those particular forms of prophecy? Because he doesn't. He sees the tabernacle, so he's kind of in he's kind of in Ezekiel position. Uh, that's that's not recorded for us in the form that it is in Ezekiel. He doesn't see the kind of un- unveilings, the kind of apocalypses, apocalyptic visions that Daniel and uh, John see, and yet he's still presented as kind of the paradigmatic prophet. So that would that might suggest that the uh, you do have these developments, but m- maybe the the essence of the prophetic task is not in those more advanced uh, visionary forms of prophecy, but something else that uh, that Moses exemplifies. I wonder if one thing that's going on is just literally this growth and accumulation of the word. I mean, if you think about prophets, we have the office of a prophet spoken about in uh, Deborah, for instance, but no actual prophecies recorded. Um, Some minimal kind of um, recording of the words of Elijah and Elisha, but soon afterwards, then you get prophecies actually committed to scripture and almost made incarnate in some sense in that they're in inscripturated. Um, and I think there's a real sense in which once those things are in the canon and written down, they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they're always there and the prophetic word can only ever grow. And so there is just this continually, um, increasing mass of the word and its prophetic um power obviously to come to its climax in the incarnate word i I mean i I take almost none of the prophetic literature of the um old testament to be completely filled up in the old testament's um own events and so I, i wonder if kind of we're seeing um in the office of the prophet the same kind of thing that we're seeing just in this um accumulation and coming to flower of of god's own sort of spoken word on that we might um think also of the way that the prophet particularly in later iterations um is someone who takes the word into himself and in various ways can embody the word and so jeremiah as he speaks can um, build up and pull down kingdoms. He's someone who has his word, the word of the Lord, placed upon his lips. His lips are touched. Same with um, the lips of Isaiah with the burning coal purified so that he might bear the word of the Lord. Or Ezekiel eats the word and the scroll and takes it into himself so that he can speak it forth. The description of the word of God burning within like fire or the ways in which the prophet can speak with a sort of divine authority that has been granted to him. Uh, Think about the way in which uh, Elijah can call for things to happen. Almost, it seems not so much directly consulting with the Lord even, but as one acting with the Lord's authority, he can bring judgment down upon people. Or we might think about the way that um, he's the one who initiates the drought, not the Lord directly and then telling Elijah and then Elijah telling Ahab. But Elijah, according to James, is the one who seeks the drought. 
and he's the one who prays for it. And so it seems that there is an increasing incarnation or embodiment of the word within the prophet. The prophet takes the word into himself. He speaks with the authority of the word. He's someone who's moved along by the word of the Lord and by the spirit. And this is a, a gradual movement that is not going to move us up to Christ, but anticipates the way in which Christ is the full incarnation of the world word. He's the word made flesh. And so all the ways in which the word is personified within the Old Testament, the way the word, word is taken into people, all anticipate that true incarnation of the word that comes in the New Testament. Yeah, and that's um, stated here already in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, the Lord promises that he'll raise a prophet and he's going to put the words in his mouth and he'll speak all that uh, Yahweh commands him. That's not yet the eating of the book that uh, goes down into the belly and then comes out, but there's still a placement of words in the mouth of the prophet. And then um, verse 19 immediately follows, because the words of the prophet are the words that the Lord has placed in his mouth, they have the bear the same authority and Israel is supposed to respond in the same, in the same fashion. Uh, they're supposed to honor and hear the words of the prophet as if the Lord himself were speaking. And if they don't, then the Lord says that I'll require it of him uh, that whoever doesn't hear my words, which he shall speak in my name, then they're treated as if they're rebelling against the Lord's own word, which which they are, because that's where the that's where those words came from. Now, I think it's interesting uh, in the light of what we saw in verses nine through thirteen. That is the various forms of divination. Uh, Moses introduces this uh, this promise of a of a prophet or a series of prophets, prophetic ministry in Israel, uh, and then immediately also begins talking about false prophets. Uh, as soon as there's a uh, a cons uh, an idea of uh, Israel having this word of the Lord in the mouth of one one person, there's the possibility of uh, of a deceptive prophet, of a false prophet, a presumptuous prophet who claims to have the word of the Lord in his mouth and speaks in the name of the Lord, but in fact hasn't uh, hasn't um, received his words from the Lord. That's a that's a continuous problem, of course, in the history of Israel. Uh, in the uh, history of the kings, you have not only Micaiah, but you have uh, hundreds of false prophets that are in Ahab's court. Jeremiah especially is surrounded by false prophets. But Moses is already anticipating that. There is the true prophet who speaks with divine authority, but there's always going to that word is always going to be contested, uh, and there are going to be pretenders and false prophets who speak without being commanded to. I'm struck by the way in which the chapter um, closes. When uh, a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, um, if his word doesn't come to pass, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Um, it's been spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Um, I just find that an interesting kind of close to the chapter. Israel is in a, a world, really, of false prophets and sorcerers who I assume got things done because they were real kind of demonically charged individuals um, like Balaam, you know, who was paid good money precisely because he, he had a power um, uh, to him. And you can well imagine that in those sorts of situations, there would have been a fear in messing with a false prophet. You know, there would be a fear that he could call down some kind of uh, curse upon you and he might have 
kind of utter curses that you know whoever um messes with me you know x and y and z will will happen he probably would have put it in slightly more impressive um terms than that but there, there could well have been people kind of uh scared away and, and the lord i guess is encouraging israel to be men of of courage and when there are these prophets who are clearly not inspired by the lord and is um who are giving false um words they're to be um challenged ultimately slain and and god will protect those who who do that and who stand up to these prophets who let's face it would have been hugely um popular they they you know did what people wanted to do they said what people um wanted them to say and that's why kings like ahab um loved having all the false prophets around um but while micaiah was in the um minority on the earth um at least in sort of heaven's uh, assembly it was it was a false spirit who was in the um minority and and i guess god is saying effectively that he will protect those who go out and seek to put down these false um prophets that israel needn't be afraid of of those kinds of characters yes it's helpful to um think in the context of the ancient world with all of its deep animistic way of viewing the creation but also the fact that this is a world before the gospel in which the power of paganism um arose in part because the kingdoms of the world belong to um satan and to his minions and so the shrines are um realms of power they are uh, there are demonic forces that are backing up some of these practices and so coming into a land that belong seemingly belongs to these agents demonic and spiritual agencies and not making any sort of alliance with those agencies not just the people of the land but with the demonic and spiritual agencies not fearing them and going in and establishing a completely new form of worship that completely excludes them and has no sort of truck with them that is a remarkable thing to do within that sort of pagan world within the world that we live it's a it's a world where the shrines in many ways as we read in the church fathers were silenced as the gospel spread and in the west for the most part we live in a world after those silencing of shrines and we have increasingly a turn towards neo-pagan practices and post-christian visions for society that seek to cast christianity as a matter of the past but yet this is a world where very clearly people see um the power of spiritual and demonic forces everywhere they go and they live in fear of them as we read in hebrews the fear of the power of death and the power that that gives to satan and the power of these forces of false gods to actually go into the land and not be fr- afraid of the people that dwell there of the giants and of the gods and animistic forces and the spiritual forces of the land is truly remarkable and it requires a confidence in the lord's power and his truth over all of these other powers and not just 
alongside them, that he could maybe outmatch them. But this power um, that Israel is trusting in is unique. It's the power of the creator himself. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.